Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined this week by David Moser. Moser, by the way, is a surname derived from the Latin for one who moseys. How are you, David? <laughs> Moseying along, Kaiser. Oh, good, good. So today, <laughs> as we record, we're actually on the first day of Beijing's second red alert for smog, though. As I was moseying over earlier, the PM 2.5 count was only about 106 this afternoon. It doesn't look so terrible as I look out the window. It doesn't look like a red alert at all. No, no. Mm -hmm. There's a a, a tinge of it in the air, it looks like. But hey, you can't actually see particulate matter. But in early December, there was, of course, another so-called air apocalypse, which oddly did not trigger a red alert. And the following week was the first actual red alert which, uh, in a widely noted irony, coincided with the Paris meeting with COP21, the 21st Conference of Parties to the Convention on Climate Change uh, since 1992. Air pollution and climate change are not one and the same issue, of course, but they are related, especially to those of us in Beijing, those of us in a country like China, uh, where the burning of coal is a significant contributor to both. But joining us on Seneca to talk both about issues of climate change and air pollution is Deborah Seligson, who is one of the most knowledgeable people out there on China and climate change, recently back from Paris. Deborah is a former, uh, is the former science counselor for the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, a 20-year veteran of the State Department, founder of the China Climate Program at the World Resources Institute, and now a PhD candidate at the University of California, San Diego, working on environmental governance in China. Deborah, thanks so much for taking the time to come in. Thanks for having me, Kaiser. Yeah, uh, so I so I wanted to talk to you about all sorts of things. But let's, let's start out with air pollution and climate change. There's a tendency to conflate these two things, to see them as one and the same. Uh, Is there a problem in doing so? Is there some sense to that? Yes, there is, because the ways you solve them are different. So most of air pollution, as well as the big problems with climate change, both come from fossil energy, from coal, oil, natural gas. But when we're talking about climate change, we're trying to reduce by some percentage from current amounts. Whereas when we're talking about the kind of pollution that causes health effects and causes big ecosystem effects through acid rain and other types of impacts on plants, and animals, we need to be reducing by much, much more than that. Mm-hmm. So when we're trying to reduce sulfur from a coal-fired power plant, we're trying to reduce the sulfur by 95 to 98%. And the way you do that is by putting emissions abatement equipment on the power plant or by putting emissions abatement equipment in the way you formulate fuel in a oil refinery. And every time you abate pollution in that way, you're actually using energy. So the typical ways that you reduce air pollution actually increase greenhouse gases. So that's why in the United States, we have two and a half times as much emissions of greenhouse gases per capita as does China, while we have way, way less air pollution, because we're actually using quite a bit of a of energy to reduce our air pollution. However, there are also ways in which they go together because anything we can do to reduce the amount of fossil fuel energy that we use, which is both improving energy efficiency and improving renewables, um, using renewable energy or using nuclear energy reduces both air pollution and climate gases. So for a country like China that's facing both these problems at the same time, reducing the amount of fossil energy used is a cost-effective way to partially address 
air pollution as well as addressing climate change so that they don't have to put as much air pollution abatement equipment on their well, we'll mention facilities. this later. It's probably uh, they're linked in the sense that the perceived the, they're linked by the optics because the perceived air pollution increases public support for the climate change agenda. So I'm not seeing that at all. I mean, I would argue, no, I I know that's a popular argument in in China. Well, so in the, so let's start with China there. You're hearing more and more of the public saying, why should we care about climate change? We've got to get this air pollution problem under control. And so I think from the public point of view, air pollution is just a much, much more important issue as it should be. It's what's making them sick now. Right. But the other thing is, in China, how much what the public wants affects what the government does is extremely questionable at best. And the government has a lot of reasons why it wants to address both climate change and air pollution that don't actually have that much to do with the public. So that's fine. If we talk about the United States, I think it has a highly detrimental effect because the number of Americans who talk to me about Chinese pollution as if we don't have a climate change problem in the U.S. because we can't see it (laughs) is actually very high. And it's completely ridiculous. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Uh, so, how should we be prioritizing things here in China? I mean, is it, it as you say, it 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 is you know it's it's visible. It's it's taking a toll on public health, as as we'll talk about later. Uh, but uh, is there a way in in uh, to 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 sort of at least in the public perception make these two things align? Obviously, around. Uh, the support of renewables. I mean, that, that, that's, that's one area, but uh, should we push this dichotomy or should we sort of try to, to, to get Chinese to see this thing as these two things as one and the same problem addressable by, well, I think, silver bullet, of course, but. I think actually the other way they align in both countries is to think about co-benefits from climate change mitigation, that to the extent that you reduce the use of fossil fuels and therefore reduce emissions, you also get huge health benefits. So this is actually the main justification the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has put forward for the Clean Power Plan, which is the big Um, Obama administration initiative to address climate change. And it will have major, major positive health effects in the United States, even though we already have lower air pollution than China. There's still more we could do. And I have friends at Tsinghua who are in the process of putting out a big paper calculating the same health benefits from the submission they made at Paris, you know, for their their climate change contribution. The point is, simply addressing climate change will never be enough to address air pollution. You have to do more. You actually have to have this pollution abatement equipment on power plants. You have to change your refineries. And you have to do that even though it will actually cause you to use more energy and therefore emit more greenhouse gases. So obviously I do want to talk about Paris, but ahead of that, I mean, you wrote uh, a couple of articles uh, in the sort of uh, lead up to Paris. One is in The New Scientist, which unfortunately is paywalled. Uh, it was uh, uh, titled really imaginatively The Dragon Morphs and had you know, terrific uh, dragon-themed <laughs> art. Uh, really... I am not responsible for <laughs> art or titles. <laughs> uh, I think that every story on China is obliged to have that. But I uh, mean, actually, it was actually one of the, the let's, let's say, sunnier pieces that, that I'd read. Uh, uh, the, the, the deck actually read... Uh, China's energy use and carbon emissions have skyrocketed in recent years, but the nation is not the eco-sinner it once was, says Deborah Seligson. Uh, so what has China done right in recent years? How, if you, I mean, I, because this article is paywalled and because we want our listeners to, to, to know its full content, talk about the article. I mean, so what, what's in there? It's, it's terrific. And I really so- wish it weren't paywalled. So the Chinese have had a huge initiative now for more than a decade on both energy efficiency and pollution abatement. So the big things that China has done on the greenhouse gas front are, number one, improving energy efficiency. So if you recall in the 11th five-year plan, which was 2006 to 2010, the goal was to improve energy intensity per unit GDP by 20%. So energy so energy intensity means you take the amount of energy used in the 
economy and you divide it by the total GDP. So right. it's a so you're looking at a percentage change. So they they didn't make twenty percent. They got a nineteen point one percent improvement in energy intensity. I considered that sort of a double victory. One, they did a lot, and two, they were honest about the fact that they didn't reach the target. That's <laughs> that to me is a good thing, right? I mean, these numbers don't mean anything if you always meet them. So, but so energy intensity was the huge thing they did, and they did that in significant part by improving heavy equipment. So improving the efficiency of power plants, steel mills, cement plants, all these big, big industries that are such a disproportionate part of the total Chinese economy. They had this program called the Thousand Enterprise Program, which targeted specifically the thousand largest companies in China, which actually were only in seven different um Hung, yeah, um, industries. industries yeah, so, um, so it, they could focus a lot, and that those thousand companies were responsible for a third of Chinese energy use wow, and over fifty percent of electricity use. So, by focusing, they really reduced energy intensity, and then they had this huge renewables build out. You know, by today, China is the largest. Um, they have the largest installed solar, wind, and hydro capacity in the world. And their nuclear capacity is not the largest yet, no. but it's growing faster than anywhere in the world. So these are all alternatives to um, to fossil fuels. But I can't emphasize enough how much more important the energy efficiency has been to date than the renewables, despite all the press the renewables get. If you look at China's carbon intensity target, right. which and, they, and they explain the, the, the relationship between carbon intensity and energy right. intensity. So carbon intensity is instead of looking at the amount of energy per unit GDP, you're looking at the amount of carbon emissions per unit GDP. So a carbon, carbon emissions could be from a bunch of sources, right? They could be from energy. They could also be from, for example, deforestation station, but China reforests, it doesn't deforest. So that isn't a big issue for China. So um, but so so when we look at their carbon intensity target, so in the 12 five-year plan, which we're currently in, the energy intensity target was to improve energy intensity by 16%. And the carbon intensity target was to improve carbon intensity by 17%. So if you notice, there's only a one percentage point different between those two targets. So 16 out of 17 percentage points or about ninety three percent, if you calculate, is is still energy is about energy efficiency right. as opposed to renewables. So that's why the energy efficiency piece is so so important. When we think about now and heading forward, getting more energy efficiency out of heavy industry is not going to be the story moving forward, and it really hasn't been the big story for about the last year or two. What we now actually are seeing are this transformation of the Chinese economy from one that's so industry dependent to one that also has a much bigger service sector. Right, the so-called rebalancing. The rebalancing. And service sector is far less energy intense than industrial sector. So this shift in structure, and the Chinese structure was very unusual, even among developing countries, right? I mean, it it was way disproportionately weighted to heavy industry. I mean, it's not the story in India or Mexico or other countries that are just developing. So this rebalancing now is a huge part about why carbon emissions are actually slowing even more. I should actually point out to listeners that even though they can't necessarily, unless they're going to subscribe to the New Scientist, can't they can read a piece on China File that you wrote, and two pieces on China Facts as well. Right, right, right. And could you talk a little bit about them and and uh, so what, what your arguments are in the China File? And so China those Facts were pieces? all about Paris. So right. we should probably be now talking about Paris. So, and, so, so, so the artic- article I wrote for China File was basically arguing that um, there's multiple forms of leadership because a big discussion that wound up happening in Paris was, is China a leader or not on climate change? And leading up to Paris, everybody was saying, oh, China's a leader, China's a leader. Mm -hmm. And then there were essentially complaints from negotiators that the Chinese were not sort of the leading compromiser at Paris. And 
to, so what I wanted to do was differentiate the fact that we have this long-term leadership, which is essentially based on all the stuff I just talked about, the energy efficiency improvements, the renewable energy growth, the real, I mean, China not only produces this stuff for itself, it's also selling this stuff worldwide. I mean, we buy a lot of solar panels from China, but developing countries also buy solar kit sets, solar water heaters. They buy much more efficient power plants, steel mills, et cetera, et cetera. So China is a huge leader in creating the basis for a power for creating the basis for the Paris Agreement by essentially showing how you can become less carbon intense as a major developing country and what providing the tools. What was the focus the of the criticism then? Uh, on leadership, so, then? so that's the first form of leadership. And the second form of leadership were the actual agreements leading up to the Paris. In particular, the two agreements between the U.S. and China, the joint statement of November 2014 and of, of September 2015. Right, it also had Xi joint State statements visit. with the French and with the EU and I think a lot of other people. So in terms of laying out the basis, China was clearly a leader. But the question was, were they a leader within the negotiating process in behind closed doors during the day? Let's remind, and, let's remind our listeners very quickly what these two were. So you have November 2014, the end of APEC and, and the announcement that was made uh, at the press conference mm-hmm. uh, about a, an agreement on climate change where uh, for the first time, China made some pretty aggressive commitments to emissions reductions. Can you un- unpack well, that so a the, bit? I'm sorry, but I actually don't deeply remember the content okay, of the that's, 2014 that's agreement. Right, all right. Because <laughs> the 2015 one has surpassed it. So in the 2015 one, China um, committed to um, bring in a nationwide cap and trade program by right. 2017, and it also committed to peak its emissions by 2030 or earlier if it or do, essentially do its best to try to peak earlier. You actually think and, that peak emissions will, will happen sometime between 2022 and 2025, right? So the modeler with the sort of most aggressive view thinks 2022, and lots of other models are sort of showing a 2025 number. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the Chinese government is never going to commit publicly to something that is on the inside of what's likely, but I think 2030 is by far the outside of what's likely, and right. I think it'll peak earlier. David, do you, do you remember of APEC, that agreement. I think it was a 20% reduction by right. 2030. I think that was... 2030 is the number that sticks in. Yeah. Right, but that was never a reduction. That's always the peaking year. Peaking year. I th- uh, I, yeah, so I think it had a new intensity target mm-hmm. is what it actually was. Uh, right, 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 right. Right, right. right. so That's it was, a, it was. an intensity target in, that yeah. took you out to, to 2030 as opposed to just these 5 and 10 year intensity targets. But... They, they're they talking about peaking 2030, if not earlier, so they're not talking about reducing before then. Right. But we were talking about the Paris talks. Right. 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 Can I ask you just quick, briefly, just to solve something or, or clear up something? There's For as long as I remember, there's been this issue of China, whether they consider themselves a developing country or, or a, you know, a developed country. And it seems like in the Paris talks there was some, some mention that that China going along with the with with the deal sort of influenced the, some of the other th- developing countries. Where, where does it update us on that? Is that still an issue, or what do the Chinese feel about yes, that? Yes, it's an issue because it's part of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. So this is the 1992 treaty that is the basis for all these additional agreements over right. time. So in the 1992 treaty. It was agreed that developed and developing countries would have common but differentiated responsibilities. And so the whole debate is always how you define common but differentiated. And so there was this way it was defined in the Kyoto Protocol that was a very fixed way. So the Kyoto Protocol was this 1997 treaty that was attempting to create a world carbon market. So it was going to be a cap and trade for all the developed countries in the world. Every developed country was going to have a specific cap on its emissions, and it was then going to be able, it was going to create trading within the country, and then there were mechanisms to trade across countries. 
So in that system, there was a list of countries that were required to do this cap. Those countries were called the Annex One countries, and they were essentially the same countries as the OECD, but Russia was in there and some of the other former Soviet Union members. Korea was not in there because it wasn't OECD at the time. So that was the list, and it became this very fixed list, and it was called the Annex One countries. Mm-hmm. And then everybody else was developing. And China and- was in the developing, the developing group, group. Right. right? So, and it was this well, very now, but now it's I'm, still in the developing group. It's still in the developing group. But which responsibilities who has has been differentiated in a much more complex and subtle way in the Paris Agreement than in the Kyoto? It's no longer this blunt instrument of there's this group that does everything and this group that really doesn't have to do much at all. I mean, the only requirement under the Kyoto Protocol for all of the non-Annex One countries, as they were called, was to report every few years. There was really nothing else asked of them. So over the years between 1997 and now, a significant number of countries within that second group came forward even before China came forward before Copenhagen and said, look, this is what we're going to do. So the first obviously was Korea that was under enormous pressure to start showing that it was doing something since it became very wealthy in that time. But then countries like Mexico and Argentina just announced targets at various points. So the Chinese first announced a target prior to Copenhagen. So, and by doing that, that was breaking a major, major impediment to negotiations that had existed up to that point. Mm-hmm. So in November of 2009, right around Thanksgiving, I rem- the U.S. and China both announced new targets, essentially back to back. The U.S. announced its 17% target for 2020, and then China announced this 45% energy intensity reduction target for 2020. And if you did the math, it turned out they were basically announcing the same thing, but using different metrics. So they were clear, it was one day apart, and they were clearly designed to align. So so from that moment on, there was an acknowledgement that while common but differentiated meant you have to differentiate, it did also mean that you could ask for different, you could ask for something from everybody. And so what you have in the Paris Agreement is this much more complex set of differentiations. But it's still the case that different. And then because the whole structure of Paris is different, right? In Paris, you're each country is making its own commitment, right? These INDCs, as they're called, where each country announces what its national contribution will be, what it will do. That differentiates again anyway. But there were still important points about differentiating on sort of monitoring, reporting, um, finance. There were all kinds of things. And on each of them, they differentiated, but in a different way. Because, for example, the Chinese have been willing to put up a lot of money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Before we get into the nitty-gritty about what was actually agreed to in uh, at Paris this year, let's talk a little bit about Copenhagen. I mean, you just painted a picture where, you know, around Thanksgiving, China and the United States made these uh, pretty substantial and aggressive commitments to, to emissions reductions, uh, in China's case, to, to energy intensity targets. Uh, why then was China really raked over the coals over Copenhagen? Why was it repeatedly described as obstructionist? What uh, went wrong, either optically, I mean, in, in terms of perception, and what's your own view, which I understand is actually a, a pretty different view than the mainstream one on China in Copenhagen in '09. Well, so I think China got itself into a position where it didn't have much room to move. So given the nature of the Chinese state and its system of collective leadership, they show... former system of collective leadership. (laughs) And that may be, and that may be a big part of the success of Paris, is that... Um, they they had they showed up in Copenhagen with a, an agreed upon negotiating position, and they really couldn't move from it. Right. Now, if you can't move from it, you are viewed by all of your negotiating partners as intransigent. 
essentially by definition, right? Sure. And then there was just this incredible amount of bad blood between the Chinese delegation and the U.S. delegation that started before the U.S. even got to Copenhagen. And it has a lot to do with the fact that everybody's always playing a their uh, everybody's playing a two level game, right? And everybody's playing their at home game and they're at the negotiations game. So before the U.S. negotiator Todd Stern even got to Copenhagen, he had a press conference in Washington D.C. where he said. It, we're not going to be able to get it to an agreement unless certain countries, and he specifically named China and India, don't offer more. This certainly seemed to me surprising given the fact that the Chinese had just announced this energy intensity target or this carbon intensity target for the first time ever. It was a major change in their ne- negotiating position. So singling them out before you even get to the table and saying they're the problem hmm. seemed like a bad start to the negotiation. But it was, it was, and, uh, it was for a domestic audience. It was for Congress. Yeah, right. it, it was, they were still trying to pass Waxman-Markey. He was trying to show he was tough. So there, there were a lot of reasons why it made sense in a domestic audience. But of course, that's not the way the news works. It reverberates around the world and everybody reads it. And then you got this situation in Copenhagen where the Chinese and the U.S. were having these like rival press conferences where they were insulting each other. And the Chinese were just really ham-handed about it. I mean, they... Surprise. Surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they kept saying... So, I mean, you could see that Todd Stern was insulting them, but he was doing it in these ways that sounded, you know, sort of subtle or whatever. And then, especially He Yafei, the the assistant foreign minister, was just saying nasty stuff. And it all seemed like ad hominem attacks. And... Everybody, it got, and the battle in the press doesn't work, right? The the press that dominates is the English English language language press press, that all talks to sort of Western negotiators on background, and the Chinese aren't going to win that battle. So, and then they had this problem that they really, really didn't want Wen Jiabao to be in a room with other leaders where he was where there was going to be give and take. So if you remember the way Copenhagen wound up was that all the leaders showed up at the end. Right. And they literally were negotiating text. And for a while, at least, on the German magazine Stern's website, there was some tape of the negotiation when this group of 32 country leaders were, like, all in a room together. And you hear, like, Obama and Gordon Brown trying to calm Sarkozy down. And it's, like, really... It's really amusing. But and and you know, it's like in the world where everybody has a Mac and somebody can just turn on GarageBand. Right. You never know what's being taped, right? right. This clearly it was not intentional. But at any rate, this you, you was You know this is being taped, right? <laughs> yeah, I have heard that. So 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 this is what the Chinese didn't want, right? And they went through all kinds of crazy acrobatics to keep Wen Jiabao out of those rooms, right? They kept um, saying they didn't get invited to the dinner and this and that. There were all these crazy things that went on. And it was all because they were not in a position where they could move on language. So what happened, though, is that the more elaborate text kind of fell apart. And there was all there was a lot of criticism of the Danes as well in terms of their managing of the whole text revision. Whoever is the president of the conference, it's their foreign ministry staff or environment ministry or whoever it is who actually are the ones who keep taking in all the inputs and revising and putting out. And that's one of the th- things that the French did extraordinarily well. All the negotiators say that they were incredible at producing these drafts over and over again and doing it on time and doing it really quickly. So that kind of fell apart at Copenhagen as well. So there were a lot of other stories going on. But so what happened was they got from like some more complex draft to this very short document that you ultimately saw come out of Copenhagen. And then there was this moment apparently where um, 
a bunch of the Western leaders had basically come up with this language, and China, Brazil, India, South Africa, um, the BRICS, the BRICS were. I don't think Russia was there, Not but Russia there were a there. bunch of them. They were all in a room together. And they were trying to decide on their position. And there was this piece of paper, and apparently Air Force One is like on the tarmac, ready to go. And by the stories I've heard is like Obama and Merkel and maybe Gordon Brown were like, somebody's got to go in there and talk to these guys. And the Europeans are like, we can't do it because... There are 27 of us. They have a collective leadership problem as well. So, like, Obama go in. So, Obama walked in to this meeting. So, it was Obama and Hillary Clinton. And there are some photos of this this yeah, yeah, meeting yeah. around. And supposedly somebody said, and certainly the Chinese have been accused of being the somebodies, said there's no table. There's no there's chairs. No, no chair available and them. Lula apparently stood up and said, have my chair. So, <laughs> so uh, Lula of Brazil. How Brazil saved the <laughs> so, so Obama sat down and negotiated the text with this group of emerging developing countries, and that's where the Copenhagen Accord comes from, that text. So that was a very, very very messy process and one where the Chinese were repeatedly sort of in a position where they were just not able to be as nimble as a Western democracy can be. And you think this was a structural problem, I think it's a deeply structural problem. But I I mean, I I do think it's one of the problems that autocracies face in, in negotiating agreements. There's a lot less trust within the system. And so it's very much more difficult for people to go out on a limb. And in a democracy, you don't have to worry about dictatorship if the president agrees to something people don't agree with. They just vote them out of office. That option doesn't exist in an autocracy. But the other problem that the Chinese had is they just didn't know yet what their future emission scenario was going to be. There were people running around like the famous economist Nicholas Stern in the UK suggesting that China might have a trajectory like the one it does have. But the Chinese own modelers weren't yet ready to believe that. And they really felt uncomfortable about long-term commitment. So they were in a very difficult situation. Paris was so different in so many ways. Because in Paris, first of all, they were structurally way smarter. They put the leaders meeting at the beginning, not the end. The leaders were long gone before any of this happened. So there wasn't this crazy panic of trying to get an agreement before Obama literally had to fly away or, you know, every other issue in the free world was about to collapse. Um, The Chinese negotiators made it clear to people, by all accounts, that they had Xi Jinping's phone number. Yeah, I'm on speed dial, right? Or his staff's phone number. I mean, the structure of the Chinese state has changed a bit (laughs) so that um, it's a somewhat less collective leadership. From an oligarchic autocracy to a more autarchic or more... A single man autocracy. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so Xi Jinping apparently felt comfortable letting it be known that they could check with him as opposed to check with seven guys. Okay. And so that, so they had more flexibility. And then the structure of the agreement was also different since they'd come in with these national contributions and they were negotiating about everything else. So they were no longer negotiating about targets. There was no longer an idea that there was going to be a single national carbon, glo- I'm sorry, single global, global carbon. carbon market. Yeah, maybe you should explain that because that that took me, it took me a while just to even re- memorize what the acronym for the INDC was. It's intended Nationally National. Determined Contributions, which is a different kind of thing than a pledge or a target or, a, you know. Well, I think that. it's the same as a pledge is what it is. I mean, it's just another word for that. Right. But um, the idea is that each country came up with what it thought it could do. And then the power of the agreement is that these need to be reviewed every five years along with the science and sort of where we are in terms of controlling global warming, and that the country's also committed to increase their effort each five years in these reviews. So the that's what's been become known as the ratchet, that the level mm-hmm. of effort will be ratcheted up 
with each um, review. With each five-year review cycle. Right? Yeah. So there was a lot of argument about whether it should be a five-year cycle or a 10-year cycle. There was a lot of argument about how it should be measured and monitored. There's still a lot of argument about how much money developed countries should really commit to. There were there were all kinds of issues, but they weren't arguing about sort of the fundamental um level of mitigation mm-hmm. of climate gases within before, the two cut, weeks of ahead, the before negotiations. We, before we get into further, I just want to cut to the chase a little bit before we get too lost in in the weeds, because at least the way I see it in the press and, and the and the analysis of this is is that some people are saying that it was absolutely a meaningless agreement that that even if even if they even if these in, INDCs go through. That, that they're still not going to come anywhere close to the to the two percent that they're t- the two degree to two degree anywhere close to it. Uh, these things that are, are just are just merely uh, intended contributions. They're they're not binding in any way. So I hear I hear this was a completely empty. This is what you hear from, of course, the right in the United States, right? Because they want. But mostly you but hear. Then, it but from... you also hear after the the deal that this was a historic event. That this was a, mo- a move forward. For I mean, what we need to hear from you is which. Who do we Who believe you are? Well, yeah. so, so I'm on the side that this was an amazing and historic agreement. I mean, I think this really starts us down the right path. Um, it right. does Kaiser, not get us. Yeah, champagne. I, I right had now. the champagne ready. Yeah, I had some. I had a lot of excellent <laughs> champagne in Paris. That's where we um, champagne. Yes, absolutely. And we did drink to the end of the agreement, my friends. Maybe that's and I. why they're so optimistic. You know. But anyway, but I mean, really, there are very few skeptics among people who are very concerned about climate change. James Hansen, in particular, right? He's who very has skeptical. Bec- right. He's a great climate scientist. He is not a political scientist, and. And he's become completely attached yeah. <laughs> to the idea that it has to be a carbon tax and no other solution will right. work. But, but so and what? there's a lot of reasons to think that while carbon taxes are the most economically efficient, they may not work politically for all countries. So for China, you know, they have a cap and trade, which is... It, economists other favorite solution it's not clear how much that cap and trade is going to do and most of china's reductions will come from the kinds of command and control target setting quota setting mandating technologies that that they've made so much progress with so far this is true for the united states as well if you when you analyze the waxman markey bill that never got passed that was going to be our cap and trade bill 75% of the reductions were not going to come from cap and trade. So they were going to come a, from a bad expenditure of political capital to try to push through cap and trade now and that instead we should pursue other avenues. Well, in the United States, nobody is expending any political capital to to push through cap and trade right now. Right. That would have been a good bill and apparently we got awfully close to passing it and it but my point is a lot of the ways it would have reduced Carbon were things like cafe standards, which are auto efficiency standards, right. which Obama then did anyway. And we have these clean air standards for power plants. His new um, clean power plan is a set of standards and quotas and things like that. So, again, it's a command and control st- system. So, different countries with their own legal structures, their own political structures, have different ways they're going to meet it. And these may all be not be the optimally economically efficient way but i don't actually think man is a political uh, is an economic animal i think we are political, political animals. animals sure let me, let me so take us back to china really quick david yeah. I'm, I'm sorry I'm, I'm sure you had something very important to ask but i i i, um, I want to be cognizant of the time here uh and take this back to china uh, one of the things that 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 uh i noticed was that the chinese negotiator his name is xie, 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 Zhanghua. Xie, xie Zhanghua. Uh, he mentioned on more than one occasion that China's per capita emissions are now uh, have now surpassed actually Europe's per capita emissions. Is is that? Or that, he usually kind of, says they're on par on with par Europe, with, with right, Jap- right. Europe and Japan. And then and, and the general kind of defensiveness, uh, that tone has gone out. And I don't just see this at a a, a, a public policy level, but I also hear at, at a personal at sort of anecdotal level. Whereas in pre Copenhagen. 
uh, there was a lot of defensiveness. A lot of my Chinese friends would say, you know, you rich, developed Western countries, you know, I mean, carbon stays in the air for 30 years. And so, yeah, okay, so maybe in 2007, 2008, we surpassed you as largest carbon emitter. But, you know, you guys have been pigging out at the hydrocarbon trough now for 150 years. And who are you to tell us, you know, us, we've shown up at this banquet full of, you know, uh, these these people suffering from from arterial sclerosis and 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 diabetes and and fatty livers and obesity, telling us this starving guy you you can't eat the meat or the dairy stick mm-hmm. stick with your tofu Attention. and vegetables. Metaphor alert. Okay, this, this is so, a metaphor. So first of all, let's let's clarify one thing: carbon stays in the air for a thousand years, okay, not thirty. Right, right, okay. So, um, and China's historic emissions are gonna get as high as ours within the next some number no of time. years. Sure. It's 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 actually now a projectable future moment. So China, I think China's situation has fundamentally changed, right? Absolutely. I mean, their their per capita emissions what were, point is hear this anymore. were right. right, we're right. But the thing is, we don't hear it because their situation has changed. Uh, you know, leading into Copenhagen, their per capita emissions were still. Um, somewhere between a fourth and a fifth of U.S. per capita emissions. Now they're, you know, two and a half, ours are two and a half times theirs, and they've surpassed the European average. Their Germany's are still higher, but the U.K. and France are now lower. So they now, ha- and the U.S.'s are going down, which, of course, they weren't until about 2007. So they're in a situation where, they are acknowledging that they're now one of the big players when sure. it comes to what climate I, I'm, change. What I was really getting at, though, was that 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 this there's this there seems to be a new sort of sense of urgency, and I am hypothesizing here that it's been brought on by the unrelated, but the only tangentially related problem air of pollution. air pollution. That yeah. that that consciousness of this is related somehow to uh, to the very now quite commonplace and vocal, uh, you know airing of of grievances over air pollution i don't actually think so okay um i think there is a new sense of urgency but that urgency is global and it has a lot to do with sort of how fast greenland's melting how fast various bits of antarctic guy on the street in beijing thinks about i don't think the average guy on the street in beijing impacts chinese foreign policy no i'm I'm talking about the er, why xie zhenghua thinks it's urgent has a lot to do with um, the impacts of climate change today. And I think what the Politburo and the state council are concerned about is it, the Chinese have long acknowledged that extreme weather events are related to climate sure. change and they're we deeply we're, we're concerned about drugs free and of, blessedly free of climate change dr- deniers here. Drugs yeah. and um, not drugs, drugs. Floods, <laughs> floods and drought. Um, Drugs and, and floods. <laughs> <laughs> Help. But um, so that's one. And there's a real concern that the Asian monsoon is going to weaken and they're just not going to get much rain into North China. Mm-hmm. So the impact side of it, they're very concerned about. And in many ways, those issues are medium-term issues that make the impacts of air pollution look small. Okay, I was hoping for a neat segue into a discussion of air, air pollution here, but well, this I think, is going to have to do. I think he was trying to... <laughs> you're going against a, a narrative that we hear often, which is the China government is it has something we call per, uh, performance legitimacy, and that the air pollution problem is one of the aspects that they see as 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 pressure on you know continued legitimacy, and you're just flat out you know negating that. And, you know, no, I mean I I, I could negate that, but I was actually arguing a different point, which is that their climate policy is actually quite a bit different from their air pollution policy. After all, their climate policy is entirely run by um, NDRC, mm-hmm. and their air pollution policy is run by the MEP. Minist- MEP Ministry of Environmental Protection. So they're actually quite distinct. So I do think it is the case that, first of all, the fact that they were successful on both sulfur and on energy intensity in the 11th five-year plan had a huge impact on their willingness to to make commitments on both. That part of the reason these both have become major measures of performance for whoever it is they need to show legitimacy to, and I suspect it's to other elites rather than to the man on the street, mm-hmm. that they these are areas where they do use them to show performance legitimacy. But... And then, as I said, the more they can do to 
reduce their dependence on fossil fuel, the better off that is for their air pollution efforts. It's also better for them in terms of energy independence, which they still worry about enormously, and for their enormous um, supply disruption concerns that are a different form of energy independence, the worry that you're just not going to be able to get that much coal from the north to the south. Remember the 2007 um, snowstorms where half of the, there were 300 million people in blackout, right? That's right. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was enormous and that was just snowstorms. So, and of course, having that many snowstorms is more likely with climate change. So, they're related in that way, but I think s- suggesting that I, I, you know, I mean, China is run by a bunch of technocrats. I find it hard Thank to God. believe. Well, I find it hard to believe that any of these people have trouble understanding the difference between carbon dioxide, which lasts in the atmosphere for over a thousand years, and and PM 2.5, which will disappear in a couple of weeks. They just understand these things. And so whether they always have the perfect policies is a different question. But I don't think they're conflating these issues the way, frankly, a lot of members of Congress do. That's that's my, yeah. Very good, very good. Uh, so let's talk about this. I mean, despite the horrors of, of November, December this year, uh, 2015 was a considerably better year than, than previous years in terms of air pollution. And We think. Talk, well, so the year's not out yet, but... Uh, uh, through September it was. Right, I mean, right. so Greenpeace did the data, and through September, it, this year was better than last year. So let's talk about Chinese progress on air pollution, assuming right. that, that there is, and, and, and what has led to this. This is something that you've also addressed in some mm-hmm. of the pieces that you've written. Um, what, what do we have to be thankful for? So so they, they started back in 2006 with these um, targets in the five-year plan for sulfur dioxide. And in the 11th five-year plan, they reduced sulfur dioxide nationwide by almost 15%. And so far in the 12th five-year plan, they've reduced it by another 13%. They've actually already hit their target. They Their target last time was 10%. They almost got to 15 They've done this, through uh, scrubbers, through what? Scrubbers. Okay. Yeah. So they installed scrubbers on essentially every power plant in China. And they, and and this was both a climate change and an air pollution policy. They shut down the tiny power plants. And China mm, was littered yeah. with very small, very dirty, very dirty, old, right. rusty. Well, they actually weren't that old. I mean, every town in the Pearl River Delta had built themselves a whole bunch of diesel or fuel oil ones because, remember, because in the 90s. Because we had these coal transportation problems. Right, that they, were, right. and coal mining and everything else. Very much so, solved by the, the high-speed rail problems. <laughs> Right. But 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 along the East China coast, I mean, these things. Well, actually, I mean, I've I've been looking at these lists. They're not that old. They may look like rusted hulks. They're small. They're inefficient. They're wildly dirty. So they were closing those down. They got scrubbers on all the big ones. And then the key thing is they put continuous emissions monitoring equipment on every single power plant in China. Mm. So this is what's known as SEMS. And this equipment sends um, in real time data to the local EPB about what's being emitted. So it started in 2006, 2007 with the data going to the local EPB. Then they just changed that. So the data now goes to all levels of EPBs all the way up to the Ministry of Environmental Protection. And more important, it goes to the Price Bureau within the Development and Reform Commission, the people who are deciding whether the power plants get their green subsidy. And they structured the payment to the power producers where they get a base payment for using coal-fired power that's really low and they make no money off it. And then they get their green subsidy, which covers both the cost of running the scrubber, because remember I said it costs 5% of energy, and an extra for their profit. So if they don't turn on the scrubber, the people who pay them know that and don't give them the money because they would rather not pay them more money. And so they've created a perfect self-reinforcing system. And this has worked incredibly well for scrubbers. Now, as of 2014, they also have to have NOx abatement, nitrous nitrogen oxides abatement on all power plants in China. And they also have SEMS, nitrogen oxide, uh, oxide 
abatement equipment is more varied. The costs of power plants are more varied. So I think it's going to take them longer to get this like clever pricing strategy mm-hmm. to actually work well, perfectly for power plants. using market forces. Uh, well, they they have they've Gee. been using you know it's been a number of years now that they've been using things like they talk, call it like green loans or something, but what it actually is is they the Ministry of Environment will go in and cut off um, companies' access to credit if they violate environmental rules because the fines were set in law they got fixed last year but they were way too low so they started using all these different economic tools to punish companies last year of course uh, we well uh, it, was, well, it was earlier this year we all saw the, the documentary under the dome and Chai uh, uh, was pointing out all sorts of problems in in enforcement especially in auto emissions and things right. like that, in trucking admission, uh, emissions. So are these, I mean, do, do you think that her prioritization was something that uh, you, you aligns with your view? Um, yeah, I actually think that her film looked like it was essentially the Ministry of Environmental Protection's agenda. Yeah. You know, yeah. she nego- she interviewed four or five office directors right. from she MEP. Got way up there, right. Um, it's, it's clear that they believed in what she had to say. And having done this amazing job on power plants, their big problem is the amount of sulfur in fuel in gasoline, in diesel. And it was clear that part of the purpose of that documentary was to take aim at the oil companies. Mm Because the problem that China has in terms of vehicles is they can mandate better equipment on vehicles, and they have, but if the oil is not of higher quality, it just wrecks that equipment. Mm -hmm. And it drives the automakers up the wall because they're like, you know, people think that my their car has a problem, but actually it's the fuel they put into it. So that's been a continuous problem here where the, the auto sector moves faster than the oil and gas sector. And so I think that was one of Chai Jing's main sort of focuses of that thing. And the other one was Hebei province in particular, where you have lots and lots of small... uh, sort of medium size. I wouldn't call them small, but you have medium sized steel mills in Hebei. You also have medium size or small refineries in Shandong. So one of the big problems for Beijing is to to its south and east is a bunch of stuff that hasn't actually come under these more stringent rules that went um, first in the 1000 Enterprise Program or in this effort toward power plants and there's a need to focus on all of these medium-sized industries and which neighboring. are all part of our air shed here right. unfortunately and continue right to these terrible and inversion and i think that that's going to happen so there's this other set of rules which came in in 2014 with a deadline of 2017 to improve air quality so this is the target that beijing reduced its air quality by 25 percent the shanghai area by 20 20% and the Guangdong area by 15%. And this requires each of these areas to essentially model their air quality, figure out wh- what all the sources are, and then try to control enough of them to actually reach those targets, which is really, really hard. So when they started this, basically the most fundamental thing that you need to start doing this is something called a source apportionment study. And other than a couple for Beijing, there weren't any. And, you know, we're talking about more than 80 cities needing to have these mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. So we didn't know um, where this stuff was coming from. Is what well, source apportionment is exactly where, how much is coming from this power plant, how much is coming from these cars at rush hour, exactly where it's coming from within your entire airshed. How much of Beijing's is coming from Tianjin, is coming from Hebei, and in Hebei, is it that steel plant or is it that horrible cement mill down the road? You need to know all of that. You need to model what you're going to need to close down and these source apportionment so, studies are now being ongoing. Ongoing. They're ongoing. And so that's what they're working on now. They're working on modeling all this. And then in the next five-year plan, the story is they're going to have air quality 
targets for all of China. They're not going to be as strict as for those three priority areas, but there are going to be air quality targets for all of China, which is good news for everybody who's worried that all that's going to happen is pollution gets shipped out west. At least there's going to be some baseline standard out there. And they're going to be bringing in targets for volatile organic compounds, VOCs, which are a huge part of this PM 2.5 problem. This is and like gasoline when you're, you're filling up your tank and then and, and vapors come. Yeah, that's right. one, <laughs> but all of the paints, paints the varnishes. And, right, right, right. Um, all that Zhuangzhou the, stuff. Yeah. Right. There's wow. hundreds and hundreds of sources of these things. Mm. You start with sulfur and power plants being the easiest thing to control. And what they're doing is then they move to NOx, where there are many more sources because you have to deal with vehicles. And when you move to VOCs, you're dealing with so many different sources. And what I think you're seeing is the MEP did this in a way that was strategic, not in terms of sort of air pollution outcomes or health outcomes, but in terms of getting the political support from the rest of the Chinese government to keep going, that what it needed to do at each level along the way was show that it could be successful and show that it could be able to enforce something. And then they would get another target into the next five-year plan. Because if you think back prior to the 11th five-year plan, they actually had lots of targets in the 10th five-year plan, and they met none of them. Mm-hmm. And people were even within the Chinese government, including people who cared about the environment, were saying, maybe we should get rid of our environment ministry. I and mean, The old minister of water resources at that time was like very eloquent about the problems with Chinese water quality. And he was like, you know, these guys aren't helping us at all. We, we should just get rid of them. But the problem is, of course, the Ministry of Water Resources has all kinds of conflict of interest in terms of actually enforcing water quality standards. So another topic for another time. But right. Let's, but let's, my let's, point. But, OK, but my point being simply that MEP went from being viewed as completely toothless to actually being viewed as reasonably powerful within the system. And they've done that through showing that they could actually enforce. Terrific. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit, I mean, I, I know that you have some views also on uh, health impact and the actual curve of pollution. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there are many of our listeners here who actually do live in Beijing or who plan mm-hmm. on coming to Beijing. Tell us how and, and uh, t- to what extent we should be genuinely worried about the health impact of PM 2.5 very quickly before we move to, to, to uh, recommendations. Well, I mean... PM 2.5 is bad for you. Of course. I mean, and the number one thing that it does is it increases the risk of heart attacks. So, but the thing is, for that, it's mostly the total volume that you're exposed to over time. So, these super bad days are not that much worse than these somewhat bad days. So, so the curve isn't actually. The curve just, isn't straight. The isn't curve. Straight goes up pretty straight between zero and 100, and then it tapers over. So these other cities in Asia, like Tokyo and Seoul, that often have numbers up around 100, you're getting a pretty bad impact Mm. from them as well. So, And Beijing gets these horrendous, horrendous days. A city like Nanjing, it's usually pretty uniformly not great every day. That's probably equally bad for your health. The point is... You know, air pollution is associated with 7% of actual cause of death in China. Um, Smoking is 19%. If you just don't smoke, you're having a much, much bigger impact. Um, Poor diet is associated with an even higher impact. So my view for expats is, I mean, if you're really worried, don't come. And I would say if, if I had a kid with asthma, I wouldn't stay in Beijing. But if you're going to be here, just reduce your other risk factors. Yeah, those are hard to reduce, though. <laughs> no, those are like uh, eat no, health. No. I actually yeah. found it easier to eat healthy in China than in other places. Well, well then here's a question number one. Well, you live in San Diego where there's so much great Mexican food, much of it lard-based. Here, here's, 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 <laughs> here's a big question. Masks, face masks, yes or no? So the data on whether they have an impact on health outcomes is not very strong, which is quite different from the data on whether if you were actually 
you wearing them properly, whether it would reduce the amount of particles. The point being that if you wore, for that to have an impact on your health, are you wearing them 24-7 and things like that? Mm-hmm. So there is some data showing that like for asthmatics in certain situations, if they wear their masks, it it, it is helpful for health outcomes. Um, I've seen very few people who wear their masks that properly that often that I would think it actually has much of an impact on health outcomes. There's actually less data showing that um, air filters have much of an impact on health outcomes as opposed to, again, reducing the amount of pollutants in the air because again remember every time you open the door and all this other stuff you're actually letting in stuff so and and the other thing with the filters and everything is there's a maintenance problem i mean if you're not taking care of them properly they just become another bacteria trap in your apartment and all this other kind of stuff so i think these are social (laughs) problems that need social solutions and that's actually why i'm really optimistic about them i mean it is possible for the wealthy to buy clean water it's possible for the wealthy to go to beautiful places even if the places near where they are are not so beautiful but if you're living and working in a major city including if you are leading one of the most powerful countries on earth you've got to live in the middle of this and so I tend to think it's the fact that the leaders have to live in this every day that is really what's driving change. Well, great. Uh, let's move to recommendations. Deb, that was great. Uh, thanks thanks so much. I think this was incredibly, incredibly uh, helpful. I, I'm sure my listeners all agree. David, why don't you start us off with recommendations for okay. the week? First of all, this is not my recommendation, but I really liked uh, Pankaj Mishra's uh, article on the Dalai Lama in uh, New York Times. Yeah. That was very good. That that. Uh, he said a lot of interesting things, but that's not my recommendation. My recommendation is a book by a friend of mine, Christopher Ray, um, uh, Chris Ray, a book called The Age of Irreverence. Uh, he's a, a scholar at the University of British Columbia. Uh, this is a, a, an article about humor of various kinds during the Republican era, political ah. humor and, and, and such. Um, it's it's probably the only academic book of its kind to actually have a blurb on the back by Eric Idle from Monty Python, <laughs> who says, I'm confident that this is the finest in its field to include a lyric by me, because he includes a Monty Python lyric in here. Which, do you, do you happen to remember? What, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll find I don't out. sing it. But the, uh, the great thing about this, if for those of you, for those who have a, a stereotype that, that China, you know, at least maybe, I don't know, but during the Republican era, uh, was the the public discourse was very prudish, conservative? Oh, we know that that's a, not true. I mean, right. we, did, we we talked about this yes, before. I know, but I'm, I'm not not you, and not not you, Kaiser. Yeah. You're a very much in the know. I'm talking about people who might. This book is he he covers uh, several different areas, uh, which he divides into xiaohua, which is jokes, yoshi as as game play, uh, maren. Oh, right. Which is hard to translate. Uh, And then uh, Yomua, which is actually translated back from English, right? And then Huaji, which is farce, you know. Yeah. The book is great fun to read, and it is body, it is ribald, it is all those synonyms for obscene. And it's very much fun, (laughs) translated very well, and gives a very uh, interesting account of that period of the of the books, the articles, the the sort of humor magazines, advertising during the Republican era, and it's it's just a great snapshot of that era in terms of humor. Terrific! We shall rush out and buy it. Deborah, what do you have for us? So um, there's a new article out in the Monkey Cage, which is the Washington Post's um, little feature that they run, which usually has political science, maybe sometimes economics. Um, academic stuff um, sort of summarized for a popular readership. And it's on um, whether democracies um, do better in sort of international conflict because they're better at acquiring allies than autocracies. Um, And it makes the argument that democracies do better because they often are fighting for a principle rather than for territory. Um, and 
this seems like it could possibly be true in some cases, but the example that they give is the South China Sea and China versus the U.S. The problem with that is that most of the U.S.'s allies in the South China Sea are all seeking territory. So <laughs> I'm not sure. But it, and, it, I, and it made me think about the um, Antarctic Treaty, where basically both the U.S. and the Soviet Union were not seeking territory and therefore were able to together impose their will on all the smaller countries that were. So it's an interesting idea. But I think what I want to recommend more is the monkey cage often has interesting academic articles summed up for for everybody to to read and is kind of interesting. And this question of what makes democracies more successful, I think, is an interesting one. I'm not sure this is the most persuasive argument. Uh, the recommendation I have for this week is actually somewhat related uh, in that it does explore the sort of why we fight thing. And it also kind of, well, unlike, like you just did, and unlike uh, the author that you cite, it kind of pokes a hole in the idea that democracies necessarily fight for an idea uh, or that, that we, we fight successfully for ideas. This is uh, an article by the excellent Scott Atran uh, from Aeon magazine. He's written on uh, on ISIS uh, probably more persuasively and, and, and thoughtfully than anyone else that I've encountered. Uh, this article is deeply disturbing, though. It's called ISIS is a Revolution. And the head, I'll read to you, the deco says... Uh, All world-altering revolutions are born in danger and death, brotherhood and joy. How can this one be stopped? Uh, He's he's director of research and anthropology at CNRS. Uh, He bases this on a huge amount of of, of, of interviews that he's done in, uh, what are they called, the Benuils or whatever of of Paris, the the, the poorer outlying neighborhoods that are are heavily peopled with, with Muslims and of course France is the, the country that's contributed the most foreign fighters to the Islamic State, and it really looks at this and uh, why you know what what the actual base emotional appeal is of 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 this and it's it's disturbing in that you know it makes it very very difficult to think of effective ways where we can actually counter this that the 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 the, the banalities of Western consumerism are we don't hold a fucking candle compared to, you know, uh, martyrdom to sacrifice for this, you know, great higher cause of a global caliphate. And uh, it, it's a real wake-up call. I highly recommend this article. It's it's a long one. It weighs in about 12,000 words, but I highly, highly recommend that you read it. I, I know I, I sound obsessed of, of late. I think every, every recommendation I've made for the last month has had to do with ISIS in some way, but it is on, on my mind. Um, thanks, Deborah. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, for coming in. And, uh, yeah, very, very educational. And, folks, we will see you next week on the Seneca Podcast. Take care.